definitely carry these on afterwards, please. Please do. Well, it's really good to see you. It's great to see you. I wonder if you're turning your Bibles to page 19. We're going to read Genesis 19 together. Just as you're finding it, page 19, Genesis 19, I want to read you some words of Jesus and Pontius Pilate. Right there on Good Friday, the King of Kings talks to the governor, the emperor's person, emperor's man, representative in Jerusalem. And Pilate says to Jesus, you are a king then. And Jesus answered, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. This isn't Genesis 19. I know if you're looking for it, you think, where's he getting this? This is, this is John chapter 18. But I just said, you probably didn't hear me, but I said, as you're finding it, I want to read you some words of Jesus. Ah, see, it's all coming together now. Oh, by the way, Sheila, happy birthday. 65 years young. Nice to see you. Happy birthday to you, girl. All right, I'm sure there's other people here. Other birthdays are available. Okay. So, Genesis 19. But have a finger in that. Don't worry about turning to John. Just trust me that I'm reading it right. So, you are a king, said Pilate. Jesus... See, I'm catching you out every two minutes at the back there. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Says Pilate. What is truth? We live in a day and age where that question is rife. This is introduction to Genesis 19, okay? We have to go back or forward before we can go there. What is truth? We live in an age that is broadly known as relativistic, where everybody's truth is relative to anybody else's. We all can hold our own version of the truth. Like Pontius Pilate who says, what is truth? We live in a world that says, what is truth? It began with the existentialists. If you are a philosopher, it started with them. They said that that being, existence, proceeds from essence. So you will have heard this, I think, therefore I am. Okay, existence proceeds, it comes from essence. I think, therefore I exist. So, so existence proceeds thought. And that's moved and it's morphed and we live in this age where my thinking, my personal truth determines my existence. And so we live in a world of multiple truths. What may be true for one person is not necessarily true for another. We live in a world like that. That's why we have so many calls and claims on what is true religion. And don't they all lead to God anyway? There are multiple truths, it seems, out there. And Pilate sums that up. What is truth? And Jesus says, I am. Truth isn't so much a set of doctrines as a person. I am truth. Truth is a person and there is only one truth. Now we live in a world that does not accept that. But as Christians, we are called to accept that there is just one truth. There are not many. In fact, all of us do that whenever we get on a plane. We believe in the truth of the law of aerodynamics that says the plane is going to fly and not crash. 
We believe in that truth. When we sit in our pews, we believe in the truth that, that these pews will hold us. We believe that that is true. We know we are not going to fly off into the air today because we know the truth of gravity. There are truths. But the world we live in wants to say that there is no moral truth. Again, as Christians, we want to say there is moral truth. There is one moral truth, and it's found in Jesus. He says his own words. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus is the word of God. That is his name. That's how John introduced us. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He is the Torah of God. The word of God. This book, therefore, is truth. It is true. It is the one truth. Our feelings... Our intellect may disagree. We may disagree strongly with it. We may even dislike it. But we cannot escape it. This is true. To try and depend on our own truth is like trying to tether a boat by tying the rope to the mast instead of tying it to the king. It's like trying to stop a, a boat in a storm by instead of throwing the anchor over the side, by throwing it onto the deck. We need a truth that is outside of us, that is not relative to us, that is not subjective to us. And this book tells us the truth. We may disagree, we may not like it, it doesn't change it. It is true. So Genesis 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn away to your servants, turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and, go, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. The writer here wants us to know this is widespread. This is all the men from all the areas of the city, young and old, surrounding the house. Verse 5, they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out the way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great 
that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place before the Lord is about to dis- because sorry because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, "Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters, who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished." When he hesitated, the men grasped his hands and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. For the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to and it is small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. But flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the the land. And the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. From the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew through those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards the land of the plain, And he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Let's pray. Father, as we read these words, Our hearts, some of our hearts break within us to see this judgment and see this destruction. We're both perplexed and sad. Lord, we pray as we come to these verses, as we seek to understand them, that you would speak deeply to us as deep calls too deep. You would open our eyes and our hearts that we might see you. That we might know you. Would you come with saving power for all of us, Lord? Would you open our ears, our eyes and our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. I suppose if we had to come up with a list of sins, we'd do it quite easily. Um... Things that would come under the heading of greed and pride, uh, sexual stuff, immorality, lust, selfishness, hatred and anger. And uh, that's actually about it. You know, those are about the headings. Some people got them down to about seven, seven deadly sins. Other people say that we can just narrow it down even to three. Love of power, love of money, love of sex. Sin is very limited, it seems, really, whereas goodness, love, joy, peace, gentleness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, kindness, self-control, seem infinite. 
But the things we think of as sin, greed, anger, hatred, murder, adultery, the things we think of as sin aren't actually sin. They are a result of sin, okay? Don't mishear me. They're a result of sin. They can be called sins, but they are not sin. Sin is the prime cause of those sins. There is something that stands before anger, hatred, adultery, and that is sin. And that is the refusal to turn to God. It is the refusal in our hearts to acknowledge him and enjoy him and treasure him as king. So I wonder if you turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to do this carefully. That's why this is now the third reading. Because this is so important in our world. This is so important in the church. And this is so important in our church. And not only this, it is important in our lives. Our eternal destiny depends on an understanding of this. The stakes this morning are high and I don't want to make a mistake. And I don't want us to make a mistake either. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God, that's God's righteous anger. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Just pause for a second. What Paul is saying here is that God has made the world. There is enough in the wonder of the world to point to the one who made it. There is enough out there to to make any person made by God turn and look and say, there must be something more. There must be a creator. It is so beautiful. The sun on my face. The water that waters the garden. It is so incredible, so exquisite, so beautiful. There must be one who stands behind it. And Paul says, everyone has seen that. For, for since, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. There is enough in the world around us, Paul says, to lead everyone to God. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's sin. They did not recognize God. That is sin. Sin is the refusal to worship God, to acknowledge him as our treasure. All the other stuff that we call sin are sins. As a result of sin. Do you get the difference? Of this stubborn refusal to acknowledge creator. And so what happens when people refuse to acknowledge him? Their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So what people do is they say, I've got my own truth. And it's been going on as long as life has. You see, when Adam took that fruit from Eve, when Eve took that fruit from the serpent, she chose to believe Satan's truth. Not God's truth. She thought there are many truths. There are two truths. One, I will be like God. The other, don't touch it. I will go for that one. So claiming to be wise, oh, I'm wise. I see past all you small people that just have one truth. I have many truths. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So people start to make their own idols. They, they turn away from the living God and they make their own things to worship. They're created stuff that they can control, that they can choose to give what they want. So they'll make a woman, a very voluptuous woman, and they'll say, this is my fertility God. She'll give me what I want. They'll make a strong man with a sword and they'll say, this is my God of war. They'll take their cat and claim it to be a God. Therefore, God gave them over. It's like God withdraws some hand of protection upon them. As they turn away from him, he loves them so much that he lets them go their own way. That's the truth of God. He loves his creation so much, he allows you to refuse him. And so he withdraws his hand of protection around them. Therefore God gave them over, verse 24, in the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, to the grading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Because of this, verse 26, God gave them over. So again, he withdraws this protection. So they turn away from him. They descend into worshipping and praising idols. He gives them over again, this time to shameful lusts. Even their women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Moreover, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over, third time, verse 28, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strike, strife, sorry, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only con continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Not acknowledging God opens a Pandora's box of terrible suffering, evil, pain, and heartache. Now when we come to this passage of Sodom and Gomorrah, it is easy for us to focus in on that which has been called sodomy. Now sodomy in law, it is a series of laws that include homosexuality, but actually go much wider. A lot of, uh, of sexual practices. And when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we often think of their sin as being that of sodomy. That's not exactly the case. What we are seeing here, in terms of, of homosexuality at least, is a homosexual gang rape of angels. Okay? That's the homosexuality we see here. If we really want to know what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is, we have to hear what God says. And I thank God that he's told us. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, God's own words as to why he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Now this, now this, Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, her daughters are the villages and the towns and Gomorrah around her. Her and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore I did away with them as you have seen. I'll read that again. Some of you have got it up in front of you. Ezekiel 16, 49. Now this 
was the sin of your sister Sodom. And her daughters, they were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor. They were needy. They were haughty. They did detestable things in front of me. The homosexual practices were one of them. But so was a disregard for the poor. So was a greed. So was pride and haughtiness. Often I see those in power like this, overfed, unconcerned with the poor, proud. We don't have to look too far before we see people like that. Often in power. That was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Homosexuality is a part of that. There is no escaping that. If we want to believe that there is an, an absolute truth outside of ourselves, we may not like it, we may disagree with it, but Romans chapter 1 tells us that a result of sin is homosexuality, unnatural practices. Sodom and Gomorrah doesn't show us that. Sodom and Gomorrah shows us a brutal attempted gang rape on an angel. Three things here I want us to look at before we come on to us. And it's three contrasts. The contrast of Lot and Abraham. The contrast of Lot and the inhabitants of Sodom. And the contrast of Lot and Jesus. So here is the contrast between Lot and Abraham. And it's more of a parallel than a contrast actually. The beginning of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 18 are very similar. These angels come and visit Abraham. He bows down before them. He offers them hospitality. He gives them water to wash their feet and he makes them food. Or actually Sarah makes food. In chapter 19, exactly the same thing happens. With the exception that Lot's wife isn't mentioned. And Lot prepares a meal. He dissuades these angels from going to the town centre because he knows what kind of city he lives in. He tells them they will be safe with him and he prepares them unleavened bread. That's bread on the go, Passover bread, made without yeast. Don't have to let it prove or whatever it is. Uh, You just, just eat it. And so he feeds them and cares for them. You see, he recognises God at work. He recognises these men as men of God. He sees God. Remember sin? Sin is the refusal to see God and treasure him. Here is Lot. He sees God at work in these angels and he treasures them. He gives them hospitality, he feeds them and he protects them. That's the first contrast. Second contrast Uh, Well, it's a parallel, that first one. The second contrast is Lot and the inhabitants of Sodom. They couldn't be much more different. It's striking how different they are. Whereas Lot recognises these men from God, the people of Sodom see them as sexual targets. Things men to have their way with. And so they descend, and the writer wants us to know this is everyone, they descend, this is wholesale, this is a place of evil and depravity. They all come, they all descend. Whereas Lot is is trying to be righteous, the people are evil. Peter, uh, Jesus' disciple, gives a commentary on this. Uh, You'll find it in 2 Peter. It'll be worth writing down if you want to follow this. 2 Peter 2.5. I'm going to read it. 2 Peter 2.5. Where Peter says, If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from trials. So Peter, 
gives a commentary on these verses in Genesis. And he says, Lot lived there and, and was righteous where they were not. And again, that's the point of the parallel. The point of the writer in telling us that Lot's reaction was the same as Abraham's reaction is to point to his righteousness, that he is a righteous man living in this place. The third contrast is between Lot and Jesus. Because although Lot, according to the Bible, is a righteous man, we see that Lot is a friend of the world. Whereas we see Jesus as a friend of sinners. Lot as a friend of the world. Jesus as a friend of sinners. So there's examples of this. Lot, when he uh, left Abraham, decided to go and live within shelter of Sodom. After a few years, he went and lived inside Sodom. There is something about this place that he likes. Perhaps he enjoyed being overfed. And let's be honest, who doesn't? Perhaps he enjoyed being unconcerned for the poor. And perhaps who doesn't? He doesn't turn over when UNICEF bring an advert on. He doesn't enjoy pushing out the world's problems. Perhaps he enjoyed mixing with the beautiful people, the haughty people. He'd obviously become friends with the king of Sodom after his uncle's great rescue. He loved rubbing shoulders with the rich and the famous whose tables were always filled, whose entertainment was always funny. He lived in this place and enjoyed it. He was a friend of this place. We see it again when he talks of these men who come to gang rape the angels. He calls them friends. Then he calls them brothers. We see that he, although righteous, has become a friend of this world. And there's no indication that he was living there to change it, but had become immersed in it. He had given his daughters to be married into it. In fact, when these men come from the angels, so, so low is his descent that he offers his daughters to the men. What kind of man does that? That's as evil. That's as evil as the men coming to rape the angels. That's as evil. And yet he offers them. We see it most strikingly here at the end when the angels say, flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. Verse 17, verse 18. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant, if your servant has found favor in your eyes, uh, don't send me to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. I hear a whisper of Jesus saying, if you would come after me, take up your cross. If you want to live, you must die. And so the angels grab him and they say, flee to the mountains. I can't flee to the mountains. There's nothing in the mountains. There's nothing but heartache and, and, and nothing food. I'll starve. I'll die. This will overtake me in the mountains. Let me go to this little town. Do you see what he says? This begging voice. Look, here is a town near enough to run to. And it is small, let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. Still a friend of the world. He wants to live in a place that shares the attitudes, the mindset, the paradigm of Sodom. And he goes to one of its outlying towns. Very small though, isn't it? No one will notice. It too gets destroyed actually. Zoa gets destroyed as well, eventually. You won't see it today, but it does. Friend of the world. Whereas Jesus is a friend of sinners. Bono, or Bono actually, Bono, that's a biscuit I give to the dog. Bono, the lead singer of U2, said this. 
that the Bible is full of hustlers, murderers, cowards, adulterers, and mercenaries used to shock me. Now it is a source of great comfort. Amen. That the Bible is full of hustlers, murderers, cowards, adulterers, and mercenaries used to shock me. Now it is a source of great comfort. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's not a friend of the world that creates them, but a friend of sinners. You have heard it said, hate the sin, love the person. And we thought it very twee and very cliched and we run a mile from it, but it is true. We hate the sin and we love the sinner. There is no example of Jesus turning any sinner away. Instead, we see him throw parties for them, tax collectors and prostitutes. They're welcome. Very welcome. He cares and he welcomes. I guess the greatest example is the woman caught in, an, in adultery. She was being used by the Pharisees to draw Jesus out. You see, Jesus preached so strongly and loved so boldly. They wanted to know where would he come? Because this was the man who said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you the truth, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And then would love and care for those very same. So they bring a woman caught in adultery right to him. They throw her down in the dust at his feet. And they say, what are you going to do, Jesus? The law says we stone her. What will you do, Jesus? And Jesus looks at them, eyeballs them. And he says, let you, without sin, cast the first stone. Oh, I love that. I love that. Because I'm one of them. I love that. Because I fall. Jesus welcomes sinners. He hates the sin and loves the people. I want to be a church like that. I want to be a church where sinners are welcome. Where all people, gay, straight, are welcome. Rich, poor, those wrestling where they are welcome. Don't you condemn me, the woman says. Don't you condemn me. I don't condemn you, she sa he said. But go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. That's the cry. This church welcomes sinners. You know, I remember a few years ago, I, I baptised a couple who were living together. And uh, people knew that they were living together and they were being baptised and... I got some flack, mostly from people outside this church. Real flack. Now, I'd been to their house and seen their setup. They were living separately. They were due to get married shortly afterwards. But for some people, that just wasn't right. And my response to somebody outside this church was that we baptize sinners here. We baptize sinners here. This pool is big enough. Jesus' grace is wide enough. Jesus' love is deep enough that all are welcome. Not one of us in this room is sinless. Not one of us in this room is perfect. And not one sin that any of us has committed is any bigger than any other. So I want to say that homosexuals are welcome in this church. However, I can't sanctify your lifestyle. I cannot marry you. Because the Bible teaches from beginning to end that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. But you are welcome here. 
You will be loved and you will be cared for. But I cannot marry you, nor bless your marriages. Because Romans 1 tells me, I may not like it, I may want to disagree with it, but the truth states it, that it is sin. But you are welcome. You are no more a sinner than I am. And you are no more in need of God's grace than I am. And you are welcome here. To be loved, to be cared for, to be held. And when you fall, you will be lifted. Just as I am. And just as the people around me are. Seven times a righteous man falls, we're told. Seven times he is restored to Proverbs. And I love that. I love that. Jesus welcomes sinners. Of which Paul says, I am chief. And of which I want to echo, so am I. And to which you, I'm sure, want to echo, so am I. So that's the three contrasts. The parallel between Lot and Abraham, Lot and the inhabitants of sorrow, sorrow, Sodom, and Lot and Jesus, friend of the world, friend of sinners. So what about us? Well, Jesus demonstrated his love towards sinners in the best possible way. He came and died for us in our place. There's no getting away from this. This is why Easter, Good Friday is so important. That's why Sunday's coming rings in our lives and our hearts. Because Jesus has turned away God's wrath. He has diverted it from us onto himself. He chose, he wanted to take it. He did not want us to taste any of God's punishment. Not a drop of it. He took it all, all our sin, all our pain, all our grief. He took and so rescued us. So he saved us. This is one thing I noticed and I love this. God went to a lot of trouble just for four people. Lot, Lot's wife and Lot's two daughters. He went to a stack load of trouble to rescue them, and I love that. He goes to trouble to rescue us, to redeem us. I love those verses around verses 20, when he takes them by the hand. Not verse 20, verse 16. The men grasped his hand, and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. I love that. It's what Jesus does. We see it here with the angels. Jesus comes to all who turn to him, all who recognize him, all who make him their treasure, whatever they've done, whoever they are, whether they've just offered their virgin daughters for rape, whoever they are, Jesus comes and he takes their hand and he rescues them out and he comes to you. His hand is open because Sunday's come. His rescue is near because Sunday's come because he is risen and he is redeemed. Sunday has come. He went to that trouble just for those. And they stuff up. If I'd read a bit more, you'd see that. We are saved from something and we are saved to something. You know, we are saved from eternal destruction. We are saved from that. Again, we might not like it. We might rally against it. We may not agree with it, but the Bible teaches it. We are saved from a destruction like this. Romans six twenty three, The wages of sin... A death. Second Thessalonians chapter one verse nine. They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of His might. 
having held the glory of God in contempt, of not recognizing him, of not seeing him, being in ungrateful and distrustful, being disobedient, we are sentenced and excluded from the enjoyment of God's glory and God's presence forever. The word hell, Gehenna, occurs in the New Testament 12 times. So many times it comes. Gehenna, hell, 12 times. 11 of them on the lips of Jesus. Now I love Jesus with all my heart. I believe that he is more than a good man or a good teacher. I believe that he is God. And I believe that he is truth. And that all who love the truth side with him. Eleven times he talks of hell. So sadly, hell is not a myth. Sadly, it is not a myth created by dismal and angry preachers. It is a solemn warning of the Son of God who died to deliver us from its curse. And we ignore it at great risk. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah I find heartbreaking. But equally heartbreaking is the reaction of his sons-in-law. Did, did you notice that? Verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was choking. Hell, Jesus teaches, is a place of torment. It's not merely the absence of pleasure. It doesn't appear to be annihilation. Jesus repeatedly describes it as an experience of fire. Matthew 5, 22. Whoever says you fool will be liar, liable to the fire of hell. Listen to this, Matthew 18, verse 9. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Listen to this one. This is Mark 9, 47. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes than to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark 9, 47. He warned often that there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. My Jesus, my Savior, the one I love, the one who is all compassion, the one whose hands are open wide to all of us, warned that there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth five times. Matthew 8, verse 12. Matthew 22, verse 13. Matthew 24, 51. And Matthew 25, 30. And it's everlasting. Jesus closes the parable of the sheep and the goats with these words. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Matthew 25, 41. The punishment is eternal in the same way that life is. This is why I do what I do. I do not want one person to go. Not a single person. I don't want anyone to think it's a joke. It is so horrible that the only rescue was for God himself to bleed and die for us and to be raised again. We are saved from something and we are saved to something. We are saved to heaven, which is eternal and is wonderful, where every tear will be wiped away, where there will be an end to death and an end to mourning. 
There'll be an end to sickness and we will be raised imperishable. We will be reunited with those we love and those we care for. Heaven. We are saved to something, heaven. And we are saved to something to make heaven on earth. Remember the sin of Sodom. It wasn't necessarily sodomy. It was this. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty, that's proud, and did detestable things before me. We are called to make heaven on earth. We are called to overturn these things. We are called to care for the poor, to help the sick. We are called to do it humbly. We are called to share our food and share our lives and welcome all who come. We are called, like the angels, to stretch out our hand to sinners and rescue and draw in and care and love. This is the hardest sermon I've ever preached. You may disagree with it. You may not like it. But as I see it, it's what the Bible treats as true. Let's pray. Sometimes, Lord, it's only when we face the bad news that we can see the depth and the beauty and the magnificent of the good news. Father, we stand before you, standing only by grace, Lord, if you marked our transgressions, who would stand? But thanks to you, thanks for your great love, thanks to Jesus, friend of sinners, we are rescued and we are saved. Today again we put our hope in the truth. That person who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we come to him. And we say, Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Saviour. Amen.